You're listening to Simports Radio, episode number 145, and today we're breaking down why you should stop fearing estrogen, how you can use it for good, and we're uncovering all the truths about PCOS. Welcome to Simple Roots Radio with Alexa Sherm. Alexa believes that simplicity in life is the key to achieving true and lasting health. And now your host, Alexa Sherm. Welcome back to the show. As always, my name's Alexa. This is the place to get healthy, live happy, and find more joy. Today, we're diving straight into hormones, which is one of your favorite subjects, I think. I mean, just based off what we've talked about in the past. But today, we're going to specifically talk about why we should stop fearing estrogen. Yes, the villain in so many people's story, or what we thought was the villain, and what you need to know about PCOS. Now, even if you don't have PCOS, this show is definitely for you because there's a lot of great information and just preventative care. But what's interesting is that PCOS is the leading endocrine disease amongst women. Like crazy, right? So today on the show, we have Dr. Felice Gersh. She is a board-certified and nationally recognized OBGYN. She works as the Director of Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, California. Her life passion is to help women reignite their internal natural rhythms, love that word, helping to regulate hormones through both conventional and holistic treatments. She just released her first book called PCOS SOS, Digging Through the Truth About Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome, which is the most common endocrine disorder affecting women. Inside the book, Dr. Gersh offers simple and effective steps to living with PCOS. So today on the show, I'm going to be asking more questions about PCOS, what her treatment plan is, as well as digging into menopausal symptoms, if you should be taking synthetic hormones, and her take on birth control. I know, it's a big show, it's a little longer than normal, but she was just full of so much wisdom, I had to keep going. So stay tuned for the show, but before we get there, I just want to remind you that all the show notes can be found over at simpertswellness.com backslash 145, giving all the resources, more information on Dr. Gersh, and some more information on healing your hormones. Now, like Dr. Gersh said, she loves to help women reignite their natural rhythms. I am all about rhythms and seasonality. You know that. So I've linked up some of my favorite resources as well as my five-day hormonal reset. I love the five-day hormonal reset simply because it's so easy and so effective. It's laid out crystal clear so you can't go wrong telling you exactly how to eat, giving you recipes, and the lifestyle changes you need to like reignite those hormones to get you back to that natural rhythm. So to find more information, just head on over to the show notes, simpertswellness.com backslash 145. Check out the five-day hormonal reset, all the other resources from the show, and don't forget to sign up for my email list. It's a place where I share all the information that's going on in my own life, give you a little insight as what's coming up, and just a place to get to know you more deeply. So head on over there, sign up, grab all that information. I know you can't go wrong. Okay. One last thing before we get to the show, I just want to remind you to tell your friends about Simpler's Radio. If you love the show, I would be honored if you would share this on social media. Just take a screenshot of one of your favorite shows, post it there, or just tell your friends, family, and coworkers about the show and get them to join this community of like-minded people. I mean, I really believe that there's something bigger going on in the world of health, that it's no longer just about food and exercise, but there's something so much more profound something that takes the whole body approach. And that's where we're going this summer as we dig into the mindset. I believe the first place that we encountered true health is in our mind. And I can't wait to dig into that and how we can heal together. So again, share this with the show. I would be honored. But for now, let's get right to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gersh. I'm excited to have you on and talk about a subject that I get asked a lot of questions about, and that's PCOS. You're the PCOS expert that I'm having on. But we're also going to dive into a lot of other things because I think we share a common passion for just women's health in general. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And absolutely, if it's about women's health, I am passionate about it. (laughs) Yes. And okay, so the first question is women's health. It's like a really big topic. And right before we started the show, you had mentioned that it's a topic that we don't hear a ton about, you know, like women don't get credit for all that their bodies do and go through and get the help that they need. And so today I want to talk through hormones before we get into PCOS, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of controversy on hormones. And yet it's the, the primary thing that all of us need to function well. So 
hormones have been villainized in the world, and yet if we balance it, they're so powerful. What are some big misconceptions that you see about hormones, and you, could you break those down for us? Well, I, I absolutely agree. I feel like I am the great defender going out there into the world and defending all hormones, but particularly my absolute favorite hormone, which is estrogen. And talk about a hormone that's been vilified. Poor yeah, estrogen. right. Yeah. I mean, estrogen, which is the giver of life, the sustainer of life in, in every which way has been accused of causing cancer. And, and like the less you have, the better. And we fill women's bodies with estrogen endocrine disruptors called xenoestrogen. So in order to understand why that is a very bad thing, you really have to start foundationally with what does estrogen do in the body? And, and maybe even before that, what is a hormone? What does a hormone do in the body? Mm -hmm. So on a very basic level, a hormone is an information messenger. It delivers critical information to a cell, and then the cell will then perform whatever the task is that's at hand that needs to be done. So of course you need the hormones. If Without hormones, it would be like you have everyone in a room and no one has any language skills. No one can, how do you communicate? So estrogen has receptors. That's how hormones work. They bind to a receptor. Now, estrogen has three types of receptors, which we didn't know about that many mm. years ago. Yeah. We have alpha and beta, and they have a couple of different ways they work. They're primarily nuclear receptors, meaning that the the hormone attaches to receptors in the nucleus of the cell, and it goes through a process of transcription and making an enzyme or a protein. And they also work, and this is a very new understanding, they also work on the membrane. So they also have membrane receptor function, meaning that they go to the outside of the cell, and then they create a response, creating a kinase, a very rapid response. So when you do the nuclear receptor functions, that takes time. It can even take more than a day to make what needs to be made. But when it goes through the membrane, it's almost instantaneous. So, and it's, they're, they're dynamically interacting. So if you have a lot of beta, it actually can downregulate alpha. So mm. it's very complex. And then we have the membrane receptor that only works on the membrane. And then we have, it's even more complex. We have the estrogen related receptor. So, so we don't even know what it is that's binding to the receptor. All we know is that if estrogen isn't in the mix, it doesn't work. And these are critically important, especially in mitochondria, in the heart, to create energy. So estrogen has these membrane functions and nuclear functions, and you need to have all of these things. And that's really critical. And if you have endocrine disruptors, these chemicals that can interfere with all of this. And then estrogen has receptors in virtually every organ in the body. It's not just about reproduction, it's about metabolic health itself, which is the force of life, the creation, storage, distribution of energy, which is the force of life. So estrogen is everywhere in the female body. It's also in the male, but the male gets most of their estrogen produced on site in the specific organs, whereas women do that too, but they get in the reproductive years, the ma the vast majority of their estrogen is made in their ovaries. Well, it should be anyway, if they have normally functioning ovaries, they're not on birth control pills, or they don't have PCOS, then they will make estrogen properly from their ovaries. So it's a very complex thing. We didn't know much about estrogen just a few years ago, and now we understand it. So we need to apply this knowledge so we can help women at every stage of life. So when you talk about estrogen, because like you said, this has been one of the biggest villainized hormones out there is, I mean, I feel like there's a fear on both ends of the spectrum. There's a fear of too much estrogen and not enough estrogen. So is it really a balance or are we looking to just increase our estrogen levels? So I'm so glad you brought that up because there's this little phrase that's called estrogen dominance. Mm -hmm. And you I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. I'm trying to wipe that I'm trying to wipe that off the map altogether because it always implies that you're making too much estrogen from your ovaries. I'm not sure what women think when they hear that term, estrogen dominance, because like in women with PCOS, women who are on birth control pills, women, because they don't have any estrogen made in their ovaries, women who are in menopause, they are living in a state of estrogen deficiency. Mm -hmm. And when you have endocrine disruptors, it's, of course, blocking estrogen in some way. So it's really more of a state of 
estrogen deficiency. The only way that you have too much estrogen is if you don't properly eliminate it from the body, or we sometimes use the word detoxify, but I hate that word because it makes it sound like estrogen is toxic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not. It's really biotransformation. It's the process of just getting rid of the old, and we always do that with all of our neurotransmitters, our, our hormones. We get rid of the old ones, and then we make new ones, and that's really a process of biotransformation. You're actually changing it from something that is fat soluble to something that is water soluble. So it can be pushed down the bile duct from the liver and then either um, out through the the gut or it can go out through the kidneys if it recirculates because you're not going to get fat soluble stuff out with the urine. So it's a transformation into making it water soluble. So it's not really changing it from something that's toxic. That's why that word is a little bit... um, uncomfortable for me to use detoxification for your own natural hormones. But if you don't have the right function of your gut microbiome, if you do have the wrong bacteria, because they're very key to getting rid of the, excuse me, getting rid of the old estrogen requires the proper gut microbiome. And you need to have a healthy liver to go through the different phases of this process. So if you don't do it properly, then you can have recycling of too much estrogen. You can have poor metabolites produced so that you don't get the right intermediaries to get the right effect and to get them out. But it's not that your body is literally making too much estrogen. Now, there is a very brief time in life when that sometimes happens very, very briefly. And that is during the perimenopausal years when the FSH, the follicle stimulating hormone, which is produced by the pituitary in response to signals from the brain when too little estrogen is being produced, but the ovaries still have some capacity to make more estrogen. And the brain says, more estrogen, please. And then it puts out the little signal and the pituitary puts out a high amount of follicle stimulating hormone, FSH, and you get sort of a burst of estrogen coming from the ovaries. And that's why women going those going through those transition years sometimes have higher rates of twins because they have this little like surge of hormones. Mm-hmm. But that is a very brief time in life. And so that's a, a very specific kind of a thing. But in general, most women are having estrogen deficiency states, or like you mentioned, it's just not the right rhythm. So it's an imbalance. It's an imbalance, and they're just, it's not coming out in the right rhythm. It's a very complex system to have it just right. You know, when you think about the lunar rhythm of a woman, that is the ultimate sign of health for a young reproductive age woman having perfectly functioning regular rhythms is a beautiful sign of health. Fertility itself is a sign of health, and of course, we're the only species on Earth that tries to control our fertility. And and there are repercussions to that as well. Right. And I want to get into some of that in a second, but I kind of want to go back, just keep on the estrogen topic, because like you said, it's been one of the biggest villainized hormones. So when we look at estrogen dominance, you know, and like wiping that off, and I love how you said that, but so many people even link that to like their problems or their issues with their inability to lose weight or excess weight gain. Like, what do you see is the function of that then? Well, the first thing when you recognize that estrogen is about life itself, it's about everything. And this is another very fundamental thing to understand is that reproduction and the rest of a woman's metabolic functions are all completely interlinked. So estrogen, of course, is about reproduction and it's also about everything. That's why it's on every single organ. That's why estrogen is made in so many organs and it has receptors on all of the organs. Mm-hmm. So estrogen is regulating everything. And estrogen has a bimodal effect. So if you have too little estrogen, like really, really too little, then that is an inflammatory state. And in fact, the menstrual cycle, where you have this rhythm of very low estrogen and then very high estrogen, all within the physiologic ranges, of course, you actually have different effects of estrogen. And that's really another fundamental thing. So if you have a chronic state of too little estrogen, that is pro-inflammatory. So if you think about the menstrual cycle, when you're having the bleeding phase, 
the menstruation phase. That is actually a time when your estrogen level is at the lowest of the cycle, and that is the most inflammatory time. And of course, a menstrual cycle is inflammatory. You're having the lining cells of your uterus die, mm-hmm. necrose, and then come out, and you create prostaglandins that are inflammatory within the cavity of the uterus that creates a little bit of cramping. It shouldn't be overwhelming, just a little bit to help push out, like a, like a mini, mini, mini version of labor to push out the lining contents. And then when you spike your estrogen just preceding ovulation, that's the highest peak of estrogen of the menstrual cycle. At that point, it's the most anti-inflammatory. And of course, it would be that way because everything's geared towards successful reproduction because you don't want your immune cells attacking the sperm that are coming in as, mm-hmm. you know, as if they're an invading alien. So, you know, estrogen is bimodal. And if you have extreme amounts of estrogen, um, if you were taking some estrogen exogenously or occasionally during those perimenopause years, I mentioned when you do have the higher levels of FSH and you still have an ovary capable of responding, then too high a level of estrogen can also then be pro-inflammatory. But generally speaking, if you stay within the normal rhythms and the normal levels, it's actually just perfect. And estrogen is actually anti-weight gain. That's another one of the the myths of estrogen is that it causes weight gain. It does not in a normal, healthy lunar cycle woman because estrogen is actually about regulation of the appetite centers. There are many, many estrogen receptors in the hypothalamus, which is a section of the brain that controls energy. So it's it's actually all about appetite regulation, energy control. That's where your circadian rhythm is being monitored and taken care of. So it's all about these amazing processes to make sure that a person doesn't intake too much food or doesn't not take in enough food. So everything in the body is very finely regulated in that department. That's why animals in the wild never get obese. They only eat to the right, you know, to society. They never overeat. In nature, we are perfectly regulated as far as our appetite goes. But of course, now in our current world, a lot of people have very, very severe dysregulation of their appetite. But that's not estrogen's fault. Estrogen actually is key to maintaining the proper regulation of our appetite and our energy balance. Mm. Okay. So when we keep talking about estrogen, what are some ways that we can regulate it? Because the common thing is just to go on birth control or to take other synthetic hormones or, you know, to try and basically come in and fix hormone on the outside rather than, or just, you know, trying to add hormones on the outside or take them away completely. But what are some ways that we can naturally help and regulate estrogen? Okay, well, first, I just want every one of your listeners to know that birth control pills do not regulate your hormones. There are no hormones in a birth control pill. They are actually officially endocrine disruptors. So they give you the illusion of having a cycle, but it's not a natural cycle. There's nothing natural about it. There are no hormones. And women who are on birth control pills, especially for long periods of their life, will have significant consequences, which we could talk about if there's time or another time, because birth control pills don't regulate. It's really important. Mm-hmm. They don't regulate anything. They just are sort of a cover up and there's no hormones. So if you want to do it the right way and you want to have really beautifully rhythmic balanced hormones, you have to start with fundamentals. We now know that the gut and our circadian rhythm are key to having beautifully regulated mm-hmm. hormones. Mm-hmm. So you have to start foundationally with, and it's not just one thing. I mean, you can't just do one thing right, although it's always better to do one thing right than everything wrong. But one thing that you have to start with is feeding your gut microbiome. It turns out that we are these unbelievably complex creatures. We're like super organisms, and we have a tremendous amount of DNA in our bodies that comes from these little critters, these microbes. And the biggest collection is the gut microbiome, where there are trillions of bacteria. And it's even more complex because it also involves viruses and fungal organisms. Mm-hmm. But if we just focus even on the on the, just the bacterial microbes, there's trillions of them. And they are hungry little critters. And they perform amazingly important functions for us. But not understanding until recently that these organisms lived within us in a synergistic manner, we 
kill them, you know, with chemicals and antibiotics. We didn't feed them in ancient times or in more primitive societies. People eat 100, 150 grams of fiber a day. A typical American may eat eight, you know, five, mm-hmm. ten. It's like unbelievably little because they eat all this ultra processed food. So you, the fiber feeds the, the gut microbes. And then in turn, they can take care of us. They maintain the integrity of the gut wall, which when it becomes impaired, they call it leaky gut. Mm-hmm. And then the, the toxins that are produced by these abnormal bacteria that are called lipopolysaccharides, or another common name is endotoxins, actually leak into the body and create inflammation. This inflammation can actually affect the ovaries and the ovaries become inflamed. That actually has been shown to be the case in women with polycystic ovary syndrome, but it can happen in any woman. Their women with PCOS are just more prone to it. And then as well, this inflammation can alter the way the brain works because you can get neuroinflammation and it can affect the master clock, which is located in the brain that sits atop the optic nerve and can sense light and dark. It's in a place called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this master clock can then get off the right time. And as well, we do other things. We eat at the wrong time. So it's not just what you eat. And so you have to eat for eating, you want to eat a wonderfully natural, whole foods, organic diet that is predominantly plant-based, plant-based. Mm-hmm. So you're going to eat lots of root vegetables, whole grain cereals, nuts and lentils and beans and seeds and all that kind of thing. You know, the real foundational plant-based diet. And if you do eat animal, you should keep it to no more than just a very small amount, like three ounces a day. That's a very small amount, more like a flavoring, like the old right. Chinese food right. where you, sprink, you sprinkle your animal on. It's very small amount. And you eat it so that it's not just what you eat, but when you eat. In order to maintain the proper rhythm, which we now know is key to metabolic health, and metabolic health is reproductive health, is, is everything. So you have to try to eat a good-sized breakfast, And then you can have a very tiny lunch or even skip lunch and then have a medium sort of early-ish dinner. Early meaning please stop eating by at least 8 o'clock at the latest, preferably 7, and no snacking because what you're trying to do is set the other clocks in your body, the liver clocks, and the microbes have their clocks as well inside the lining and inside the gut itself. So every living creature on earth has clock genes. That's like the most amazing discovery. And the people who researched and got this information to us, they won the the Nobel Prize for Medicine back in 2017, not very long ago. So this is a very critical bit of information. And then, of course, it's sleep. We do so much to disrupt our circadian rhythm. We go to bed way too late. We have too much light in the room when we go to bed at night, which suppresses our melatonin. We go to bed at odd times. We call it social jet lag, like you stay up really late Mm -hmm. on the weekends, or then you sleep in. Basically, that social jet lag. And of course, sometimes we have real jet lag. We fly around the country, fly all over the world, and we have all these time zone issues. And then about a third of women have shift work. And that's a real challenge for me with my patients when people work at night or work late, late into the night, because we are what are called diurnal creatures. Nocturnal creatures are like owls. That's not us. Mice are nocturnal. We're diurnal. We are very different in the day and at night. And we're supposed to be active and functioning in the day. And we're supposed to be sleeping, resting, rejuvenating at night. And we don't do that. And that really disrupts the hormones of women and their cycles. We now know that women who work, for example, shift work, are much more prone to having irregular menstrual cycles and fertility problems. So maintaining a healthy circadian rhythm is key to maintaining reproductive and hormonal health. Very, very key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are all such practical things that we could be doing. But I think we've thought so long that hormones are just so outside of our control that we have to rely on these outside sources that, like you said, birth control is absolutely not not helping our hormones in any way. Right. So what do you tell people who are on synthetic hormones or feel like they need to reach for those? Like, is there a time and a place for synthetic hormones or um, external hormones? for our body or is there is there not um only for very short intervals for example if i had a woman come in to me reproductive aged young woman and she was having 
extremely heavy bleeding. So we call that dysfunctional uterine bleeding. So an ovulatory bleeding. So she's not putting out an egg. The uterine lining is building up because she does make estrogen, but she doesn't have a beautiful cycle. She doesn't make progesterone. She just makes estrogen and she's not cycling. And the lining builds up, builds up, builds up. And then it's like a tower of blocks that gets too high. It just starts falling over and she starts bleeding. There's no control. The, the normal controls that exist in a menstrual cycle are not there. So the bleeding doesn't stop. So I could have a young woman come in and she says, I've been bleeding for six weeks straight and it's heavy and it gets heavier, lighter, heavier, lighter as the, you know, as she doesn't realize it because the lining gets thicker and then falls out, gets thinner, gets thicker, gets thinner. And her blood count and her iron are really low. Now I have to do something to stop that bleeding right now. Right. So going on very short term birth control pills while we get her her blood, you know, a little, her blood count up a little bit and we get the bleeding to stop. That may be necessary. So I'm using birth control pills, not for birth control, but really as a, a pharmaceutical agent to just control the bleeding so that, you know, so that she can recover. And then I will do all the things I need to do working with her stress. You know, there's so many aspects that we could talk about because stress will affect your circadian rhythm, lack of exercise, a sedentary lifestyle. We know that exercise increases the diversity of the gut microbiome, which is so critical. You have to have not just one type of bacteria, but that thousands, you know, you need to have a tremendous variety, you know, so at least hundreds or maybe thousands of right. different strains of bacteria and exercise actually increases the diversity of the microbiome. So we have to work on all these things to try to get her to have a healthy rhythm. I can get almost every woman, if she'll work with me, it may take a year because many women have a lot of things going on in their lives that we have to work with. And, but I can get them to have beautiful, regular cycles. Like I said, it may take a few months. It may take a year, but that is the goal. Once you really recognize that having a healthy menstrual cycle is a sign of health, it's not just about making babies. It's about the foundational health of that woman. That's why the menstrual cycle is now viewed as a vital sign of female health. And if you cover it up with chemical phony baloney hormones, they're not real hormones, of birth control pills, you're not addressing what's really going on in that woman's body. And there will be a day of reckoning because you're not, you can't, it's like if you put wallpaper, a beautiful wallpaper on a wall that's filled with mold and, mold and termites, you don't have to look at the mold and the termites. But one day you're going to have to deal with it. Something's going to happen. Maybe the roof will fall in because the wall caves in, right. but you, you will, there will be some repercussions, I can guarantee it. And we're seeing that, I'm seeing this all the time now in young women who were put on birth control pills because of terrible menstrual cycles, terrible cramps, irregular periods from day one, like almost from the, from the as soon as they went through puberty, their periods were terrible. So by the time they're 14, 15, their mom says, you know, you got to help her. She's missing all this school. Her cramps are terrible. Her bleeding is heavy. She has PMS. She has like every problem associated with a menstrual cycle. And she's 14 or 15. And so they get on birth control pills at this incredibly young age. And then they're on it for 10, 15, 20 more years. And I'm seeing them when they're in their 20s after they've been on birth control pills for about a decade. And, and I'm seeing a lot of the the ramifications of being put on them in terms of their joints. They're having a lot of joint problems, a lot of mood problems, sleep problems, and a lot of urinary tract infections. And there's so many issues that they're having because they never actually had the beautiful hormonal rhythms. And so we have to start working with women when they're really kids, right? When they're young teens to help them and, and throwing birth control pills at them is really not addressing their underlying issues at all. Mm -hmm. I agree. I totally agree. So one more question before we get into PCOS. I get a lot of questions about menopausal women, if it's avoidable, what you should do in the case. But you're saying as long as you have ovaries, you're kind of always making the right amount of estrogen. Like just kind of clarify the menopausal age. Right. Well, when you are at any age, you may be making the wrong amount of estrogen and the wrong amount of progesterone if things are not right with, you know, all the, the lifestyle things that we talked about. Now, inevitably, no matter how well you take care of yourself, and I say this to all the women I speak to and in my practice, 
you can't meditate, you can't exercise, you can't, you know, eat your way out of menopause. It's, <laughs> it's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. Now, what you can do is delay it. And that is a very good thing. We now know that the longer you delay menopause, the better off a woman is. So an early menopause is associated with much higher rates of cardiometabolic dysfunction, like hypertension and diabetes, you know, insulin resistance, mood problems. So an early menopause is not a goal. That is like the opposite goal. We want to have the latest menopause possible. We want to maintain a long life of our ovaries. And you can do that with all the things I mentioned by maintaining a circadian mm -hmm. rhythm and also of going everywhere out of your way to avoid the environmental toxins that we're really swimming in. All of these endocrine disruptors, the plastics, you know, the flame retardants, there's, you know, you can go on right, and on with right. all the chemicals. And these chemicals really can increase the onset, make it earlier for our menopause. So menopause, though, is inevitable. And it is never the beginning of a new healthy chapter, unfortunately, because nature hooked everything together. So our reproductive functions and our metabolic functions are all unified in one whole. So when we lose our capability for reproduction, our metabolic systems start to go down the tubes. Now, it's not an overnight, like you crash, although some women do seem to crash. But so every woman goes through menopause a little bit differently. I think of it as what reserves you have when you enter menopause mm -hmm. during the perimenopause and the menopause years. If you've lived a super healthy lifestyle, you have more reserves. It's like you hit retirement and you've saved all your life. You have good financial reserves. If you've led a life where you've been almost exclusively on birth control pills, you've had a poor processed food type of diet, you have been sitting on your butt most of your life, you know, mm -hmm. you have no, no fitness, you know, fitness itself is another vital sign. So you don't have fitness, and you don't have good nutrition, you don't, you've never had good hormones in your body because you're on birth control pills, or you had other issues going on, and you didn't have healthy hormones, when you hit menopause, it's much worse for those women. So it's what you know, what you for your whole life, you're building to try to, to sail or glide through menopause instead of crash and burn when you hit menopause. Because once you're in menopause, you don't have the beautiful rhythms that maintain all the metabolic functions of your body. So you have to go sort of through the backdoor route to maintain your circadian rhythm by functioning just with diet, trying to maintain the best diet and exercise. You have to really focus on lifestyle because even if you go on hormones in menopause, which I'm a big advocate for, but I don't push everyone or anyone into using hormones. And I respect women who don't want to go on hormones. But even if you do go on hormones, you can't replace the ovaries. It's it's still a very poor mm -hmm. substitute for having real ovaries. We can't really mimic the complexity of the ovaries when we give hormones. It's, so we have to be realistic about that. So we really have to work very hard to maintain a healthy circadian rhythm by really eating what we call time-restricted eating, yeah. doing periodic fasting, which I'm a big advocate for periodic fasting, and then going to bed at the same time, really sleeping in a very dark room and making sure you get the maximum melatonin production and working on stress. You really have to pull out all the stops to stay healthy once you hit menopause. No woman goes through menopause and then suddenly has this surge of health. It doesn't work that right, way. I wish right. it did. We have to battle to stay healthy once we hit menopause. And it starts during the perimenopausal years because we now know that atherosclerosis, the plaque in the arteries, is already escalating in its development during the perimenopausal years. So we should actually stop thinking of menopause as like you cross the finish line. You know, you mm -hmm. haven't had a period for you know 12 months. It's really a process. I would rather think of it as ovarian senescence, the aging and loss of function of the ovaries rather than loss of your period. Because the, the loss of your period is a manifestation of the aging of the ovaries, which is a process that goes on over several years. And the negative effects of that are preceding the end of the menstrual cycle by quite a few years. So we really need to be on guard, you know, far before the end of the period comes and understand it's a process, not mm -hmm. crossing the finish line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I like all that. Such great advice for people who are in that phase and just breaking down what we've been taught and to know the truth. Okay. That took up a lot more time than I thought, but I really want to get into your latest book, PCOS SOS. 
why did you write this book? And like, what is the big message inside of it? Well, polycystic ovary syndrome is the most common endocrine disorder of women around the world. It begins actually probably at in at birth or in childhood, but it doesn't, it doesn't typically obviously clinically manifest until after puberty and it doesn't ever go away. The metabolic issues stay with you for life. So although it's really considered a condition of reproductive age women, and that's when women have the most obvious effects from it, but it's really a lifetime condition and it probably starts in utero. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because it is the most common, but it also happens to be in my family and my oldest daughter, who wrote the book with me, PCOS SOS, did also discover we that she had PCOS when she was trying to get pregnant. And we talked about that. And then she was able to use diet and she was able to conceive naturally, which was wonderful. And I had PCOS myself. There's a huge genetic link, like 50% of women with PCOS will have their daughters have PCOS. It's very high genetic link. And I did have to take fertility drugs to get pregnant for my first. And as well, I had gigantic babies and I'm actually a rather small person. And I had babies like nine pounds, nine pounds, six ounces. I didn't you know, eat a lot. So I actually had some degree of insulin resistance. So I really was motivated both for myself, my family, and for the patients that I saw around me, that the increased incidence of this was really driving me to make this book happen. Because when I first started in practice, PCOS, although it was not a rarity, it wasn't anywhere near at the levels that we are now seeing. And I was just last year in India lecturing on PCOS, and they they think because they don't really know for sure because there's no real data collection and in India women don't even want to admit they have it Mm -hmm. because it can really impact their ability to find a husband and so because that's how it's looked as they may have fertility problems so but they think it could be getting close to 40% of the women in India. And in the U.S., some estimates are it could be as high as 25, 20 to 25% of women. And part of the problem is that we have very poor data collection. Most of the data comes from how doctors code visits. And many women with PCOS are not diagnosed or they're improperly diagnosed. Their diagnosis may not come for years and years after they're manifesting the symptoms. And a lot of doctors also code without using PCOS. They may code irregular periods or some others. They may code for hirsutism or acne. So they'll code for one of the symptoms of PCOS instead of using the code for PCOS. So we really don't know the numbers, but it's always underestimating when we look at those codes. So it's hugely prevalent. So I felt we need to do something. And then I looked at the the treatment. I belong to a lot of the organizations that deal with PCOS and the treatments haven't changed in like 20 years or longer. Mm-hmm. It's like the first line is go on birth control pills, which we now know are really, they should be contraindicated because we don't give birth control pills to women who have high risks of getting things like heart attacks, strokes, diabetes. We wouldn't give them to smokers. We wouldn't give it to a woman who just had a heart attack. Why is that? Because it increases their risk of cardiometabolic ills. And women with PCOS have a significantly higher rate of getting blood clots. Their insulin resistance are more prone to diabetes and dramatically more prone and hypertension. So why would we give a pharmaceutical that actually promotes all those bad things and increases the risk of all those things. So it's really sort of a crazy maker to me that we're giving so many women with PCOS a drug that really should be contraindicated for that group. And then it's um, metformin. And I'm not like that hostile to metformin, but there, there are other more natural ways. When they've done studies with metformin in diabetics, they found that lifestyle always beat out metformin in performance, always by a lot. So why are we using a drug that is actually an endocrine disruptor? And they're giving metformin to women with PCOS all through their pregnancies, which is a terrible thing because we now know that it alters the babies. There's studies published that show that by age four, babies of women who were on metformin during their pregnancy are already metabolically dysfunctional. They have more body fat by age Hmm. four. So this is a not a good thing. We have, we have other ways that we can help women with 
their insulin resistance through their pregnancy. And they're giving spironolactone, which I'm also not totally against. But once again, you're not really dealing with the underlying issues. And it's a massive teratogen. So you can't get pregnant and be on spironolactone. It, it can do tremendous damage and create deformities in the baby. So you, you need to have something that's really going to prevent pregnancy. And so they always put them on birth control pills. And of course, I don't want women to get pregnant when they're not ready. But I don't want if there's ever something that happens that they're on a drug that will actually cause massive deformities in the baby. Right. You know, that's that's not a that's not like and also I just have this sort of like underlying negativity to a drug that I know causes massive deformities. Like it just feels like why would I give that to someone? There's got to be some other things, even if we don't recognize it, because that doesn't feel good, you know, giving something like that. Right, right. Yeah. So when you talk about PCOS, how would you know you had it? Like what are some of the symptoms and is it easily diagnosed? Like you said, there's some coding things that are going on, but are we like are most physicians capable of diagnosing this? Absolutely. It's shocking to me that so many women go around undiagnosed. If a woman, in term, there's so many different types of manifestations of PCOS because it involves estrogen. And estrogen, as we already know, is now pervasive throughout the body, performing many, many functions. But in terms of the, the obvious sort of gynecological manifestations and, and sort of physical, visible manifestations, women with PCOS typically will have some menstrual dysfunction, either no periods, irregular periods, um, or you know, too often or too infrequent. So something is going on. They don't have nice regular cycles. They also tend to have a lot of facial hair or what we call hirsutism. They may have acne. And the kind that they get is the, the really recalcitrant, difficult to treat cystic acne where they get these yeah. cysts usually on the on the jawline, the lower part of the face, and it's just so miserable. And it doesn't really respond typically well to conventional treatments. And um, Accutane, if used in, in women with PCOS, yeah. has a very low long-term success rate, maybe 30%. So that means 70% will not ultimately respond. They may short-term respond and then they'll like rebound with more acne after just a little while. And it can cause permanent problems to the gut, like permanent, very hard to treat irritable bowel syndrome. So, and with a low success rate. So it's, it's not a wonder drug for women with PCOS in general. So it's a very difficult, challenging problem. And they have a lot of fertility problems. It's the most common cause of infertility. And if they do get pregnant, they tend to have every kind of complication at a much higher rate. So it has all of these fertility problems and reproductive problems. And then if you get into the metabolic realm, then it's associated with all the cardiometabolic hypertension, insulin resistance, uh, and, that, and then you have mood issues, more mm-hmm. like depression, anxiety. But if you want to look at what are the key things, the general thing is that you have to have um, at least two of the following three. You have to have menstrual dysfunction, you have to have little teeny cysts on the ovaries. That's where they get the name, polycystic ovary syndrome. It's because the body isn't regulating the beautiful cycle where you put out one egg. The, the, I call it the chosen one. One egg gets chosen every cycle to be ovulated, and that beautiful selection process isn't happening properly in women with PCOS. So they keep building up all these little cysts that are the little like beginning follicles and none get selected to actually grow and mature to become the mature follicle, which then release the egg. So you just keep getting all these little ones building up. So they would have the irregular cycles, the polycystic ovary findings on, on ultrasound, and then androgen excess. So the androgen excess is like too much of the adrenal hormone DHA sulfate, or the most common is too much testosterone mm-hmm. coming from the ovary. And of course, that's what causes all of the hirsutism, the hair growth, and also loss of scalp hair. No woman wants to go bald right. or have really thin hair, but they don't go like totally bald, but they do have a lot of thin hair and that's called androgenic alopecia and that is just a devastating thing to women with PCOS when they see their hair thinning and they're like 
20. You know, right. it's just, oh, right. it's so hard. It's so heartbreaking. So you need to show either clinical signs, like you manifest signs of too much androgen, too much like male type hormone, or you have it when you measure it in a, in a blood test, or you have the, um, and you have the irregular cycles or the cysts on the ovaries on the ultrasound. You have to have two of those three. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That makes it's not sense. that it's no. not that hard. It's no. not that hard to figure out. Right. Right. So what are a few tips that someone who struggles with PCOS could could start with? Like if they have if they know they have PCOS or they have some symptoms of it, like what are one or two things that you would give them to start making changes? Well, we'll go back to what we talked about. It's about trying to get your estrogen optimized and have your hormones balanced. So you want to have the best diet possible to feed your microbiome. This is something that just was proven in the last couple of years. It's such new data that the microbiome, these microbial populations in our gut in women with PCOS are abnormal. So you have to work extra hard to feed them the wonderful vegetables and plant-based diet type materials in your diet. And then, so that's like a must. You have to start with diet. You have to clean up your diet. Women with PCOS are ultra sensitive to anything that creates inflammation. Their white blood cells, because they don't have the proper estrogen control of them, because they're not making estrogen enough. This is like a really key take home. Women with PCOS are estrogen deficient. Their ovaries actually don't make enough estrogen and their receptors in their body for estrogen are not functioning properly. And this is because of endocrine disruptors in genetically predisposed women at young age, critical like turning points in a woman's life when she's developing these receptors and so forth. So it's really key to maximize your, your hormonal production by reducing inflammation in your ovaries. They actually have done studies pulling fluid out from the follicles of women with PCOS and they find more inflammatory cells. So women with PCOS are very inherently inflamed and you've got to start by calming the gut, by getting rid of that leaky gut, by reducing the release of endotoxins because their white blood cells are like powder kegs. They explode with inflammatory contents at a lower threshold. So you've got to work to maintain a healthy gut microbiome. That is paramount. And the other is the circadian rhythm, which we've touched on because women with PCOS, and they've actually done a study, you normally will have a circadian rhythm of your cortisol. That's a very key hormone. And the cortisol is typically higher in the morning when you wake up, sort of energizes you, gets your appetite going, and it breaks down your body for nutrients until you get food in you. And that's why breakfast is so important. And then it's low at night that allows the melatonin to come up and and do all its thing. So women with PCOS, they have studies that show that they have a flipped circadian rhythm. So they have higher cortisol Mm -hmm. at night, but it should be the lowest. They have trouble getting to sleep and it's low in the morning. So they're kind of like dragon in the morning. They have low energy. It's like they want to drink a lot of coffee. And so this is like a really big thing. Women with PCOS are living in jet lag. It's a naturally created jet lag from their their inherent problem with PCOS. So we already talked about all the problems of jet lag. So women with PCOS are naturally jet lagged. So they have to work extra hard. And the way that you can help maintain a circadian rhythm, because their master clocks are naturally drifting off the beat, because estrogen maintains the proper function of the master clock, and they don't have enough. So you have to do the backdoor route, which is by working on the clocks that are in your liver, in your gut, we call them the peripheral clocks, the other organs of the body have their own clocks. And like an orchestra, you can set them if if there's something wrong, and you lose your conductor, you can put metronomes at every station, you know, with all the different instruments to try to keep the beat. So we can keep the beat by doing timed restricted eating. So if you eat at the same time every day, you don't snack, that helps to keep the beat of your circadian rhythm, which is key to metabolic and reproductive health. So those two things alone, which are so, you know, so important for every woman in every situation, but are ultra important for women with PCOS because those two things, the circadian rhythm and the gut microbiome mm-hmm. are, malf- are malfunctioning in them, even you know without doing anything wrong. So we've got to work extra, extra hard. 
My last question, even though we could keep talking forever about this, but my last question is, what is your take on supplementation or adaptogens and the usage with hormones or PCOS? Well, um, there's there's definite benefit. Now, um, I don't think of adaptogens as long-term therapies. Mm -hmm. I think of them as short-term, short-term meaning maybe up to three months, you know, to help get things right. Because when you are having trouble with energy, like, like there's so many wonderful adaptogens. I love ashwagandha and rhodiola and ginseng. So there, and I love maca. So there are, these are, I think of them as green medicine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're not, they're not pharmaceuticals Mm -hmm. and they're natural, but you're trying to create an actual effect. So you're using them in the same way that we would use a targeted pharmaceutical, but these are much better and they have and, and a lot of their side effects are actually benefits, you know, when you look at herbs. But um, in terms of teas, I say unlimited use of teas. But in terms of using concentrates um, of of herbals or polyphenols, where you, you take the extracts of a plant and you sort of like quercetin. I love using quercetin, but I hate to have to use these things forever. I'm trying to use them as, like I say, green medicine for a certain period of time. And they can be really wonderful because women with PCOS and women across the world, you know, are having problems with fatigue and mood. And we can definitely use these wonderful plants. I'm doing a lot of research now on, on, which is another whole interesting topic on the use of cannabis for women, CBD. Oh yeah. So that's a big, big area. And women, women, we can talk about that another time because a lot of women don't understand its effects on reproductive health, how it can actually lower your hormone production. So uh, you have to be very, very cautious with using, especially THC. So that's another um, plant, you know, so I'm, I'm all into plants. We just have to use them judiciously and with knowledge because they are green medicine. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't in the uh, in the plan, but I said that was the last question, but we're going to do one more. So when you talk about cannabis, I mean, there's obviously a difference between that and CBD oil, which doesn't have any THC in it. Have you seen any research or are you doing specific research on just CBD and its effect? And do you think that's a long term use or a short term thing? Well, I do. Uh, there, well, cannabis, of course, is like the whole is the plant and yeah. this hemp, hemp based, and then there's marijuana. And hemp itself has very, very tiny levels of THC, whereas um, marijuana based cannabis can have pretty high levels. So right. you really, so you really have to know what you're doing. And I think absolutely, there's going to be some major uses for CBD in women. And the biggest growing group that's using it is actually postmenopausal women mm. because they're using it for problems with sleep because it's all about losing your estrogen. But of course, we know younger women now are having a lot of problems with hormonal right. balance too, but you know, for pain and sleep and mood. So I, I think that in some women who are older, there may be a, a chronic benefit to using it like all the time for younger women i don't really like the idea of using it chronically because i'm trying i can't cure menopause i can treat it but i can't cure it but in younger reproductive age women my goal is to really cure things really get things back on track so that i would want to use something like cbd as a short-term plus you know you have to be careful because a lot of women don't know this that it can increased risk of miscarriage and hormonal imbalances is this beautiful interplay between estrogen and the endocannabinoid system, which is a, another whole really critical system yeah. in the body. And the the exogenous cannabinoids, that's, I mean, the external ones like CBD oil, they can work on our own endogenous system, the endocannabinoid system, but it's way more complex because there's also sort of ancillary receptors that are involved besides just the endocannabinoid system. So it's, it's a huge new world, you know, a whole new thing that we're going to try to understand. And I'm looking into it in great measure to try to help women to use CBD appropriately and also to get the right product because you can use oils, right? You can use it as a suspension. You can use it as a capsule. You can, you know, vape it, you know, so there's all different, these different ways. Of course, there's edibles and then you can smoke it, which I'm never in favor of smoking because of this. But, you know, there's a lot of different delivery systems and they each have their own pros and cons. So, 
people have to know how to use it. And it is complex because um, there's the entourage effect where you're looking at all the different cannabinoids, all these different components of cannabis working together to create this sort of amazing effect that sort of transcends its each individual component and um, or you can actually get isolates and right now I'm looking more at using the total product rather than the isolates I think you're going to get a better effect but we're still really at the the beginning stages of really using this and understanding this so stay tuned because um that is my my one of my big projects right now and I yeah. I think there, there will be a role for CBD in women with with PCOS. Um, I'm looking into that right now, but we have to be careful because it's such a complex system, you know, that we want to make sure always that we do no harm. But I think that there will be a role for that in certain, in certain areas for women with, with um, PCOS and, and a lot of other things, but because of our endocrine disruptors, because it's really a very important foundational thing to understand that estrogen is really key to the proper function of the endocannabinoid system, which is the primary system that cannabis works on and CBD works on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I just can't wait to see more research come out about it because, I mean, I think it's just going to be one more, like you said, tool that can be beneficial in some way. So pretty awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for the wealth of information that you provided us. Your book is fantastic, and I recommend everyone go out and get it. Before you tell us where they can find that, I do have a few quick fire questions, and then we'll get in um, to where they can learn more about you. So the first quick fire question is, what's the first thing you do every morning for your health? The first thing that I do is when I wake up, I'm wearing a sleep mask. So this is like right, right at the start. So I wake up naturally occasionally with an alarm, but I always have my alarm on like a sleep, you know, like a, like a pause mode so that it will go off again, like in, in 10 minutes. So when that happens, and usually I wake up on my own, I, I take off the sleep mask and I let the light go through, filter through my eyelids because this is because I am a menopausal woman mm-hmm. and I know the importance of my master clock, knowing what time it is and getting me off to a good start. So it's sort of like my own version of a dawn simulator, right? Because I don't want to go from real dark into real bright. So I, I let the light filter through my eyelids. And really, um, then I, I usually think about my day and I'm relaxing. My eyes are closed and I let my body sort of wake up on its own. So I think how you wake up is really key to getting your day going. Mm-hmm. So it's also reduces stress when you do it that way. And, and your brain really adapts to its daytime. So that's really the number one, one thing that I do every single morning. And then I like to start out with drinking something, but I can't <laughs> because right. I have, I have to take thyroid. Uh, so okay. I have to take my armor. I have to take my armor thyroid. So, but once I get past that, you know, I have to wait a good half an hour. Um, then I really like to have a good breakfast. Uh-huh. So, you know, if I, if I didn't have to take my thyroid, I would probably start right away by drinking a nice glass of water with lemon juice or because uh, I really like that, but I, I can't do that. So people who can, they can do that and really hydrate because most of us never hydrate enough. You have to realize that our bodies are predominantly water and we just live in a very little fluid coming in. A lot of people hardly ever drink. You know, they're busy. I mean, I see some people that's like one, it's either feast or famine, the ones who hydrate endlessly and the ones who never do. Mm -hmm. So I have to work at it because I'm so busy during the day. I don't have time to go. So I try to get hydrated in the morning. And I, I, there's some data, real data that shows that if you well hydrate in the morning, your brain is going to work better for the rest of the day. So wake up gradually, let your clock adjust. It's now daylight and let it, you know, set your timer in your brain and then hydrate to get your brain feeling really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So good. That was such great information. What's your favorite health book outside of yours, of course? <laughs> Um, well, I love Isabella Wentz's books. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she just has a, a brand new one out on the Hashimoto uh, mm-hmm. diet and um, 
So, and she's a, just a lovely person and a, and a great friend. Um, I also love the books by um, Stephen Sinatra. I love the uh, the one about earthing. Uh-huh. That one is because I, I don't talk about it enough, but yeah. earthing, getting your feet on planet earth or using a substitute like a grounding mat is so key to health. We live insulated and we do, it's another whole topic, but I'm very big on electromagnetic radiation and it's physical effects and of course trying to limit it you know so that and so I love his book with um, Marty Zucker and Clint Ober on unearthing it's a little bit older they have a new edition that came out not too long ago so for people who don't know anything about this topic they should get the book earthing uh-huh. Yeah. I love, I love the topic of earthing too. And I just feel like I agree. I don't talk about it enough either and the importance of it. Um, and so I will make sure and add that in the show notes as well. Okay. What's the one thing you do for a healthy mind every day? Oh, for my healthy mind, I constantly or using I'm using my mind so that's one of the things is in terms of new things I every day when I come into my office so I'm primarily a practicing doctor a clinical doctor and I have a practice in Irvine California a real old-fashioned brick-and-mortar practice where I sit down and I hear stories every day of women and their health issues so my poor brain is overcharged really on you know, keeping up with the science and focusing on everyone who's coming in to see me. So I never feel like my brain has any, any problems in terms of getting new information um, presented to it. So, and I'm always creating slide decks because I'm lecturing all around the country and around the world. So I think that when you talk about your brain needs to always be stimulated, you need to be doing new things and so on to keep your brain sharp. Mm-hmm. That is one thing that I am pleased to say that my brain doesn't get too much of a break. I'm always challenging my brain with with all the diagnostic challenges of my patients and creating new data and researching on new topics for new books and like CBD. So um, I guess. I am always challenging my brain with new information. Mm-hmm. I, I never, I never um, give my brain a break. Probably it needs a little bit more of a downtime. If anything, <laughs> I, need, I need to, I need to, I need to have more downtime, which I don't give myself. <laughs> I understand as we all should give ourselves more downtime. And the last question is what's the best piece of advice you could leave us with? The best piece of advice is to know that you are a living creature, part of the animal world, and that you are fully adapted evolutionarily to live on this planet, that we have these amazing, beautiful rhythms, the circadian, the lunar, the seasonal, that we are part of the animal kingdom, that we are not computers. And so we need to love and care for our bodies and recognize that we are part of this wonderful whole called planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. I thank you so much for being here, Dr. Gersh. Can you please tell us where we can learn more about you, find your latest book, and anything else you have going on in the upcoming future? Well, I see patients every day in my office. It's called the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, located in Irvine, California. And I do see patients from around the country and around the world. And we help them to come and stay if if they don't live locally. And I have a couple of websites. My practice website is integrativemgi.com. And my sort of like focused on me website is Felice L. Gersh, md.com. And I'm on Instagram and I'm on, I have Twitter and uh, they're not too hard to, to find. So, and then my book PCOS SOS is available on Amazon. Awesome. I will make sure and link all of that up in the show notes so you can find it quickly and grab a copy of her book, Dr. Gersh's book. It's fantastic. You won't regret it. And thank you again, Dr. Gersh, for being here and sharing all that information, such valuable information to us on hormones. So it's not so scary and we know how to deal with it. So thank you again for being here. My pleasure. I mean, I told you, she has a ton of wisdom, right? So I hope you love that show as much as I did and got some clarity on the subject of estrogen because it can be such a scary hormone and we've been taught to fear it in some way. But if we just start putting into practice some of the things she talked about in the show, we can start to see great changes. And like she said, it's not about not going to the doctor. 
yes, there is a place to go and get tested and to get treatments that are appropriate for you. So if you have any questions, these are just great subjects to bring up to your personal OBGYN or physician. But I would also recommend that you head on over and grab Dr. Gersh's new book, PCOS SOS. If you think you have PCOS, she kind of gave you an idea of how you could tell if you did. Of course, you could go and grab a diagnosis, but even if you questioned it, you could head on over to Amazon or Target or any of the places her book is sold and grab a copy for yourself because it's going to share so much insight into this disease and what we could be doing to prevent it and to treat it. So, Thank you so much for tuning in. Like I said, I hope you love this episode as much as I did. Just a great insight into hormones and how we can continuously work with our bodies. Like I mentioned in the beginning, don't forget to head on over to the show notes to get all the information. That's at simperatwellness.com backslash 145. And while you're there, check out the hormonal reset. It's five days. It's super simple and very, very effective. It just creates this space, this environment for your body to not just thrive, but to restore and renew itself back to optimum functioning. It doesn't take long. Like I think sometimes we think it's going to take this grand gesture, but just giving our body space to do the job that it was designed can make all the difference. So it's five days. It lays it all out very clearly for you. It's one of my most popular courses, and I believe it really does have a huge impact. And what's cool about it is, is that you can learn these habits and these new ways of life to incorporate them lifelong. So I feel like every time I do the cleanse, I get closer to that just becoming my more normal lifestyle. Of course, there's always ebbs and flows to that, right? The seasonality of things, but it is pretty profound. So you can get all the information on the hormonal reset over at simperitswellness.com. Sign up for the email list. And before we go, don't forget to share this podcast with friends and family. It would mean the world to me and it's the lifeblood of the show. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm coming back here on Friday to give you a little bonus episode on my cheater's guide to meal planning and (laughs) what I'm meal prepping for spring. So stay tuned, come back Friday, check that out. And don't forget to come back here next week for another episode of Simple Roads Radio. I'll see you on Friday.